Blog Talk Radio.
In the middle of the 19th century, Moses Hess formulated the first written principles of communism. In 1862, Hess, or the communist rabbi as he was called, wrote the book Rome and Jerusalem, in which he laid the foundations for a Jewish nationalist movement called Zionism. In the book, he called on the Jewish people to become separatists and to prepare for the creation of a future homogenous Jewish ethno-state. Palestine would be occupied by the Jewish people, but the big problem was Palestine was at this time 19 to 95% Arab. Hess argued that international Jewish bankers would help in this realization of stealing the land from the Palestinians. Hess suggested in his book that one last race and class struggle was being developed between the Aryans and the Semites. In this fight, Hess predicted that the Jews would stand as winners and the Europeans as losers. The Jews would stand superior over all other peoples, and because the Jews had preserved their racial purity over the centuries, it would give them a leading role in the world. Hess essentially promoted eugenics and racial hygiene for the Jews and talked about a future Jewish ethnostate. He also referred to Christianity as the religion of death. Fascinatingly, he predicted a future war in Europe with Germany, Italy, and Austria involved as part of a race struggle. Moses Hess was a close friend and collaborator of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, which he converted to communism and assisted them in their work with the Communist Manifesto in 1848. This proves that socialism, Marxism, communism, and Zionism in fact share the same roots. Although they travel different paths, they have the same common goal, domination of the world. They all work and plan for the day when the chosen race shall inherit the earth. Karl Marx, real name Moses Mordecai Levy, was descended from a long line of famous rabbis who were so-called Talmudic scholars, from which as a source his own philosophy was derived. Marx's grandfather was a rabbi by the name of Mordecai. In fact, his grandparents were related to the Jewish Rothschild family through marriage. Rothschild would also partially fund Karl Marx, who would be remembered as the Jewish father of communism. Le Don de Vivre, May 12, 1936, said, Jewry is the mother of Marxism. The Communist Manifesto laid out the ideology of communism. Its key points include a central bank with monopoly on credit, abolition of countries and nationalities, Abolition of the traditional family, consisting of a man, a woman, and children. Abolition of private property, which means no rights for the people. To make it impossible for people to earn a livelihood by introducing heavy taxation, confiscation of property, abolition of the right of inheritance, and a communist state, i.e. Jewish monopoly on credit and banking. The media in total control of the communists. Women should not focus on family and children anymore. In their own words, communism wants to do away with the status of women as mere instrument of production and abolition of Christianity and morality. 
Marx refers to this totalitarian regime as dictatorship of the proletariat, and his cult followers promote violence, class envy, and hostility towards free markets, family, business, tradition, and Christianity. Today, they are instrumental in the destabilization of Europe. Marx also openly encouraged genocide against Slavs, referring to them as racial trash and that they must perish in a revolutionary holocaust. I don't think many people know that um, only socialists publicly advocated genocide in the 19th, 20th centuries. I think that's, that's a very little known fact and, and it seems shocking if you mention it. I've, I've lectured on it here and in other universities and it's always, always greeted with a sense of shock.
1897, the first Zionist Congress was held in Basel, Switzerland. It was chaired by Theodore Herzl. Jewish delegates from across Europe agreed that Palestine should be given to them. Prior to his death in 1904, Herzl predicted that a world body will one day give Palestine to the Jews and that he will go down in history as the father of the Jewish state. For Herzl's dream to come true, European military powers would have to be manipulated and used into taking Palestine away from the Ottomans by force. In the German newspaper Deutsche Zeitung, Herzl wrote, The wealthy Jews rule the world. The fate of the governments lies in their hands. They start wars between countries, and when they wish, the governments make peace. When the wealthy Jews sing, the nations and their leaders dance along. And meanwhile, the Jews get richer. Dr. Wolfson said in New York Times article in August 22, 1907, that Jewish people must conquer the world. Communism was devoted to abolish private property in order to concentrate all wealth and power in the hands of the global central bank. Well, around 250 years ago, in 1760, Mayor Amschel Rothschild created the House of Rothschild that paved the way for international banking and control of the world's resources. Money is power. Money is the only weapon that the Jew has to defend himself with. Oh. Meyer Amschel Bauer, born in Frankfurt, Germany in 1744, was a moneylender and a goldsmith on Jew Street, whose shop had a sign out front read hexagram on it. Eventually, he would change his name to Rothschild, which is German for red sign. Rothschild soon learned that loaning money to governments and kings was more profitable than loaning money to private individuals. Not only were the loans bigger, but they were secured by the nation's taxes. Meyer Rothschild had five sons whom he trained in the skills of money creation and sent out to the major capitals of Europe to open branches of the family banking business. You are five brothers. I want you each to start a banking business in a different country. One to go and open a house in Paris. One in Vienna. One in London. Choose the most important centers. So that when money is to be sent from here to London, let us say, you won't have to risk life and gold and kill here in Frankfurt. Just send a letter to Nathan in London saying, pay so-and-so, and that will be offset by loans from London to Frankfurt. You understand? Yes. In your day, there will be many wars in Europe, and nations that have money to transport will come to the Rothschilds because it will be safe. Our five banking houses may cover Europe, but you will be one firm, one family, Rothschilds, who work all together. That will be your power. Just how rich and powerful is Lord Evelyn Rothschild? Historically, the Rothschild family wealth was hidden in underground vaults. The Rothschild secret financial records were never audited and never accounted for. Their family commissioned biographies give the illusion that their family fortune has dwindled, but researchers estimate their wealth at close to $500 trillion, 
more than half the wealth of the entire world. Besides their many castles, palace mansions, wineries, racehorses, and exotic resorts, the Rothschilds bought Reuters in the 1800s. Reuters then bought the Associated Press, which selects and delivers the same news stories to the entire world, day after day. They have controlling interests in major television networks and easily avoid media attention since they own it. Until recently, they owned and operated England's Royal Mint and continue to be the gold agent for the Bank of England, which they also direct. They control the LBMA, London Bullion Market Association, where 30 to 42 million ounces of gold worth over $11 billion are traded daily. The Rothschilds earn millions weekly just on transaction fees alone. They also fix the world price of gold on a daily basis and profit from its ups and downs. Over the centuries, the Rothschilds have amassed trillions of dollars worth of gold bullion in their subterranean vaults and have cornered the world's gold supply. They own controlling interest in the world's largest oil company, Royal Dutch Shell. They operate phony charities and offshore banking services where the wealth of the black nobility in the Vatican is hidden in secret accounts at Rothschild Swiss banks, trusts, and holding companies. Although Evelyn Rothschild looks like a harmless gray-haired old man, make no mistake about it, Rothschild and his ancestors have hand-picked presidents, crashed stock markets, bankrupted nations, orchestrated wars, and sponsored the mass murder and impoverishment of millions. The wealth hoarded by this one family alone could feed, clothe, and shelter every human being on earth. The Rothschild is the head of the snake. Within the city of London, there is a one-mile square that is referred to as the city. This is the headquarters of the Jewish family Rothschild's banking dynasty that owns the money supply through the central banks of almost every nation on earth. In November 1910, one of the world's richest Jewish men held a secret meeting on Jekyll Island just off the coast of Georgia to establish a central bank, which they called the Federal Reserve Bank. These men were Nelson Aldrich and Frank Vanderlip, both representing the Rockefeller financial empire, Henry Davidson, Charles Norton, and Benjamin Strong, representing J.P. Morgan, and Paul Warburg, representing the Rothschild banking dynasty of Europe. There were some powerful men who made abundantly clear that they were not in favor of the Federal Reserve System. Their total wealth today would be worth nearly $11 billion. These were Benjamin Guggenheim, Isidore Strauss, and Jacob Astor. Unfortunately, all of them were aboard Titanic when it sank to the depths of the sea. All three died that night. By April 1912, all opposition to the Federal Reserve had been eliminated. On December 23, 1913, after many senators and congressmen had left town for Christmas, the President Wilson signed a bill and the privately owned Federal Reserve System came into being in the United States. After Woodrow Wilson had signed the Federal Reserve Act, which gave private interest control of economic power in 1913, he said, I am a most unhappy man. I've unwittingly ruined my country. A great industrial nation is now controlled by its system of credit. Our system of credit is concentrated. The growth of the nation 
therefore, and all our activities are in the hands of a few men. We have come to be one of the worst ruled, one of the most completely controlled and dominated governments in the civilized world. No longer a government by free opinion, no longer a government by conviction and the vote of the majority, but a government by the opinion and endurance of a small group of dominant men. Jewish bankers and their rabbis actually celebrated the passage of the Federal Reserve Act in 1913. After the Federal Reserve was up and running, Charles August Lindbergh added, The financial system has been turned over to the Federal Reserve Board. The system is private, conducted for the sole purpose of obtaining the greatest possible profits for the use of other people's money. The Federal Reserve System was neither federal nor does it contain reserves, and nor is it a part of a decentralized system. The adoption of the debt-based financial system preached by Marx in the Communist Manifesto had been accomplished. The current banking system, fractional reserve banking, enables privately owned banks to create money out of thin air. Money today is simply numbers in a computer system with only about 3% existing as physical currency. Through its control and monopoly of our money, the elite that own the Federal Reserve now have total control over other banks, corporations, money, and politicians. The Fed system is designed to enslave us to never-ending debt and to fool us to believe that our money has any real value when it is, in fact, worthless, created out of thin air, based on debt, and backed by nothing. It must enslave humanity to protect its monopoly over credit. Its money-creating tricks enable Big Brother government to borrow endless money from the Fed. The Fed were now controlled by the Jews, Rothschild, Warburg, and Schiff. Every Federal Reserve chairman since 1980 has been Jewish. Burns, Volcker, Greenspan, Bernanke, and Yellen. The House of Rothschild owns 57% of the stock of the privately held Federal Reserve Bank. What is the uh, proper relationship, what should be the proper relationship between a chairman of the Fed and a president of the United States? Well, first of all, the Federal Reserve is an independent agency, and that means basically that uh, there is no other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take. The Jew Harold Wells Rosenthal explained, Our power has been created through the manipulation of the national monetary system. The Federal Reserve System fitted our plan nicely, since it is owned by us. But the name implies that it's a government institution. From the very outset, our purpose was to confiscate all the gold and silver, replacing them with worthless, non-redeemable paper notes. We, Jews, have put issue upon issue to the American people. Then we promote both sides of the issue as confusion reigns. With their eyes fixed on the issue, they fail to see who is behind every scene. We Jews, glory in the fact that the stupid goy have never realized that we are the parasites consuming an increasing portion of production while the producers are continually receiving less and less. We have to understand that one of the most powerful tools the globalists have for profit and control is war. The most lucrative thing that can happen for the international bankers and the globalists 
is war. For it forces the country to borrow even more money from the Federal Reserve Bank at interest. Christian Russia, and from there, launch an invasion of the rest of Europe. According to the State Department's documents, a group of Jews, including Jacob Schiff, Felix Warburg, Otto Kahn, Mortimer Schiff, Isaac Seligman, already planned the overthrow of the Russian Tsar in 1916. They decided that Russia should be destroyed, and a communist slave regime would be implemented. The fact that we will never learn in school is that communism actually was a Jewish totalitarian ideology invented by Jews, funded by Jewish bankers, and economically manifested by Jewish Bolsheviks as Vladimir Lenin, Trotsky, Kaganovich, Yagoda. The family of Tsar Nicholas II, his wife Alexandra, his daughters Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia, and his son and successor, Alexei, were devout Orthodox Christians. They exemplified everything that was precious in a traditional family. As a boy, Tsar Nicholas II had witnessed the assassination of the Tsar Alexander II by the Jewish terrorist Vera Figner, leader of a terrorist group called the People's Will. Tensions between the Jews and the Christian Russians started Nicholas' great tragic mistake was in failing to execute the communists before it was too late, after a failed 1905 revolution. Now, his kindness would return to haunt him and his family. The Bolsheviks forced the Tsar to abdicate. The Jew Alexander Kerensky was given $1 million from the Jewish Wall Street banker Jacob Schiff to immediately free all political prisoners and lift the ban on political exiles to permit them to return to Russia. Revolutionaries quickly flooded in to any and all public offices. 
anarchy began as criminals plundered houses and people were murdered and robbed. Jacob Schiff was chairman of the Kula Bank and an assistant of the Jewish Rothschilds. He took care of the contacts between the revolutionary movement in Russia and the Jewish Masonic Order, B'nai B'rith. On March 27, 1917, the Jews Jacob Schiff and Max Warburg sent Lev Davido Bronstein, better known as Trotsky, and his group of Jewish communists off to Russia to lead a Jewish revolution with no less than $20 million in gold, today worth billions. Some 90,000 exiles, mostly Jews and Freemasons, returned from all over the world to infiltrate Russia. Most of them changed their Jewish names to blend into the European society better. Another banker who financed the revolution was the Swedish Jew Olaf Ashberg of the Nya Bank in Stockholm. Olaf's grandson, Robert Ashberg, is a former member of the Swedish Communist Party and today leader of the Zionist anti-white organization Expo in Sweden. Trotsky recruited Russian Jews from the immigrant population of the Lower East Side of Manhattan and trained them as armed revolutionaries. Lenin, Marlow, Radek, and Kamenev returned from Switzerland. Stalin, Sverdlov, and Sinyonyev returned from Siberia. The Jewish chairman of the Central Executive Committee, Jacob Sverdlov, sent a message to the Jew, Jacob Jurovsky, head of the local Cheka, where he communicated that he had received from Jacob Schiff to eliminate the Tsar and his entire family. Svetlov ordered Jurovsky to carry out this order. In the spring of 1918, the Tsar and his family were taken to Ekaterinburg in the Urals, where Jacob Jurovsky was given the mission to imprison, plan, and assassinate the imperial family. Jurovsky brought the Tsar Nicholas and his family to a house that previously had belonged to a wealthy Jewish merchant named Ipatiev. Nicholas' imperial family was abrupting in the middle of the night on July 17, 1918, when the Jurovsky told the imperial family to dress and then brought them to the basement. They were told that they were going to pose for a group photograph. But the Jewish assassins, Jurovsky, Nikolin, Jermakov, and Baganov, had other plans in mind. Seconds later, Jurovsky then pulled out his revolver and aimed it straight at the Tsar's head and fired. Nicholas died instantly. Next, he shot Sarina Alexandra as she made the sign of the cross. Olga, Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia were shot next. The daughters were stabbed to death after the initial gunfire had failed to kill them. Their doctor and three servants were also murdered in cold blood. Items that were related to the imperial family were burned and destroyed. Nothing was saved of the family. Even their dogs were slaughtered. News of the brutal murder of the Romanovs would send shockwaves throughout Russia and all of Europe. To some Jews, though, the slaughter of the Romanov family was treasured as a Jewish ritual murder. In selected Jewish-owned shops, they sold greeting cards with images that were unavailable for Gentiles. The postcards carried the image of the Sadiq. This is an image of a rabbinical Jew with the Torah in his hand and a white fold in the other. The head of the depicted fold is clearly shown to be the Imperial Russian Tsar Nicholas II. 
Below this image is the inscription in Hebrew. This is a sacrificial animal, so is my cleansing. It will be my replacement in cleansing the victim. A bloody civil between the red Jews, led by Trotsky, and the white Christians, led by Admiral Kolchak, broke out before the Jews could grab full power of the Soviet powerhouse to set up their own Bolshevik totalitarian system. David R. Francis, U.S. ambassador to Russia, said in January 1918, the Bolshevik leaders here in Russia, most of whom are Jews and 19% of whom are returned exiles, care little for Russia or any other country, but are internationalists, and they're trying to start a worldwide social revolution. The Jewish role in the communist revolution was mentioned in many major Jewish publications, such as the Jewish Encyclopedia and the Universal Jewish Encyclopedia and the Encyclopaedia Judaica. In fact, they are boasting about the essential role of the Jews in the Russian Revolution. The Jewish Chronicle said, There is much in the fact of Bolshevism itself, in the fact that so many Jews are Bolshevists, in the fact that the ideals of Bolshevism at many points are consonant with the finest ideals of Judaism. Of the 22 ministers in the first Soviet government, 17 were Jews. The few were not themselves Jewish, often were Freemasons, had Jewish wives, and spoke Yiddish. We can't know for sure if Stalin was Jewish, but at least he spoke Yiddish and had three Jewish wives. Some historians claim that Stalin was Georgian, and some say that he was a Georgian Jew. Los Angeles B'nai B'rith Messenger, for example, stated that Stalin was a Jew. Stalin's real name was Losis Vizarianovich Zhugashvili. The Jewish writer Moritz Steinschneider invented the term anti-Semitic in 8060. The term would be used to silence all those that dared to expose Jewish crimes. Because of the predominantly Jewish character of the regime, the very first piece of legislation approved by the communist regime was the Anti-Semitism Act in 1917. Anti-Semitism was made a capital crime. An anti-communist was regarded as an anti-Semite. Leon Trotsky also started using the word racist to browbeat all dissenters of the communist ideology and to render debate impossible. These words are used still to this day to bully any politically incorrect person into silence. Even more now than ever, they're trying to make it punishable to question or criticize their actions by calling it hate speech, fake news, or anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitism is, is used as a great blockade. Um, when somebody's called an anti-Semite, it's usually because they've, they've asked some question or made some comment about Jewish behavior in some way, shape, or form. And because Jews don't want to discuss that behavior, they call you an anti-Semite for daring to question that Jews do anything bad ever. That's really why it is used. Um, anytime you say something about Jews, Zionists, Israel, anything with a tangent to Jews that is in a negative light, you're going to be called an anti-Semite by the Jews because this is the defense mechanism that they use to cover up their crimes and to prevent 
analysis of the criminal action that has happened, which so very often leads to a Jewish perpetrator. The Jewish philosophy is... How did Franz Seiler describe it the other day? It is an excuse to commit crimes. That's all it is. You put all your morals aside and you can do anything. That's the Jewish philosophy. And, of course, the other part of it for the people who actually are Jewish and following the dictates of the Talmud believe that they are better than everybody else and they act accordingly. And we see the horror in the world that is generated by that insanity. You must understand, the leading Bolsheviks who took over Russia were not Russians. They hated Russians. They hated Christians. Driven by ethnic hatred, they tortured and slaughtered millions of Russians without a shred of human remorse. The October Revolution was not what you call in America the Russian Revolution. It was an invasion and conquest over the Russian people. More of my countrymen suffered horrific crimes at the blood-stained hands than any people or nation ever suffered in the entirety of human history. It cannot be understated. Bolshevism was the greatest human slaughter of all time. The fact that most of the world is ignorant of this reality is proof that the global media itself is in the hands of the perpetrators. We cannot state that all Jews are Bolsheviks, but without Jews, there would be no Bolshevism. For a Jew, nothing is more insulting than the truth. The blood-matted Jewish terrorists murdered 66 million in Russia from 1918 to 1957. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Nobel Prize-winning novelist, historian, and victim of Jewish Bolshevism. They were taught to be ruthless. Vis-a-vis the Goyim. It was a virtue to be ruthless to the Goyim. I mean, you can say, okay, it's just cheating them economically, but I mean, that's, that's a form of aggression. And you were taught that if you cheated the Goyim, you didn't have to feel guilty. And so it's only a step there from taking that to the, uh, you know, to executing the Goyim. The Jewish Bolsheviks implemented a policy known as collectivization. By collectivization, they could take away the peasants' land in the name of the state. This was what Marx himself described as the essence of communism, to abolish private property. In early 1930, over 91% of the agricultural land was collectivized. The communists were taking every good from the peasants. All weapons of the civilians were also confiscated by the state. He ordered them to confiscate all grain, all food, from the series. By doing that, he knew he's condemning them to death.
December 4th, 1921, Samara District, Soviet Russia. Today I came upon a group of men in a makeshift cemetery digging a mass grave. When I asked where the bodies were, one of them explained, We are trying now to make a place to put the future corpses. We are afraid we won't have the strength to do it later. As I looked at them, I wondered if any of those men thought he might be digging his own grave. Will Shafroth, American Relief Administration. The famine of 1921 would become the worst disaster in Europe since the Black Plague in the Middle Ages. The government carried out mass requisitioning of grain, which prevented peasants from feeding themselves or even having enough seed to carry on next season planting a new crop. People had fled their villages, desperate to escape the famine. At the station at Kazan on the northern Volga, wretched creatures huddled together in compact masses like a seal colony. Most were children whose mothers had deserted them or had died. I saw emaciated little skeletons whose gaunt faces and toothpick legs testified to the truth of the report that they were dying daily by the dozen. The stench was nauseating. An estimated 25,000 Russians died in these regions each week. 75,000 more deaths by the end of March. People had been dying at this rate all over Russia, all winter. Will Shafroth described the scene he witnessed in Samara. I have seen piles of corpses half naked and frozen into the most grotesque positions with signs of having been preyed upon by wandering dogs. I have seen these bodies and it is a sight that I can never forget. It is impossible to describe the suffering and misery that presented itself on every side. I found the only food was made from weeds mixed with ground-up bones, tree bark, and clay. The famine was awful. People were eating almost everything that could be swallowed. They ate, straw from the roof. Using this uh, straw and uh, such substitutes of food, they became ill and they looked something like uh, fat men, but it was the beginning of their illness. They ate all cats, dogs, 
causes everything. Shafrov cabled Haskell in Moscow that the body of a Russian assistant who recently died from typhus had been dug up and eaten. Ten butcher shops, he said, had been closed for selling human flesh. Americans read that Shafroth himself had been eaten. The government tried to stop people eating corpses. And they read the propaganda against this, and they tried to put guards in the cemeteries in order to prevent people from eating dead bodies. Grandma told me about it. When the dark was coming, they put a huge lock to save children, because children were the main target of cannibals. There were cases of killing children by their own mothers, by, by, own, by their own parents, and eating them. Some mothers did that for mercy, but some mothers killed them to feed other children especially very small babies. The starvation would peak in the winter and affect 16 million people. Before the corn and wheat seed arrived, up to 5 million Russians had starved to death. During the periods of 1921 to 1922, 1932 to 1933, and 1946 to 1946, the Jewish Bolshevik regime deliberately mechanized three series of genocidal man-made famines aimed at starving farmers in Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Russia. Millions died a slow death and people resorted to eating grass and some even to cannibalism. This real holocaust is today referred to as the Holodomor. Encyclopedia Britannica estimates around a million people, five million of them Ukrainian, were starved to death by the Stalin-Kaganovich famine alone. And the three Holodomor genocides together resulted in a death toll of 16.5 million. Russian historian Alexander Solzhenitsyn estimated that between 1917 to 1958, the Jewish Bolshevik regime managed to exterminate up towards 60 million Europeans, including victims of the forced collectivization, the hunger, large purges, expulsions, banishment, executions, and mass deaths at gulags. Людей, 
рано хуру дали, то накидали на хуру, їх там 10-20 тисяч там налізло, накинули. Ну, вікно з'їхала пара волінь, то рундук. Я то куди попала, ногами і руками лежать люди. І висять воза, і кусає листить із воза. Так стало страшно, та жалко. Ми кажуть, ходіть до нас, то я кажу, то я вже піду. Я ж кажу, мама і тата в хаті, ідуть. With these famines, Lenin, Stalin, Kaganovich, and all their Jewish agents destroyed any remaining resistance to the communists. An order from Lenin and Trotsky, the Red Terror was first announced by the Jew, Yakov Sradlov. Lenin stipulated that three-quarters of mankind may die if necessary to ensure the other quarter for communism. Lenin even outlined the purpose for the famines by stating, Destroying the peasant economy and driving the peasant from the country to the town, the famine creates a proletariat. Lenin also regarded Europeans as animals. It is precisely now, and only now, when in the starving regions people are eating human flesh, and hundreds if not thousands of corpses are littering the roads, that we can, and therefore must, carry out the confiscation of church valuables with the most savage and merciless energy, not stopping short of crushing any resistance. He continued, the greater the number of representatives of the reactionary clergy or reactionary bourgeoisie we succeed in executing for this reason, the better. Leon Trotsky said, we must turn Russia into a desert populated by white Negroes upon whom we shall impose a tyranny such as the most terrible Eastern despots never dreamt of. The only difference is that this will be a left-wing tyranny, not a right-wing tyranny. It will be a red tyranny, and not a white one. We mean the word red, literally, because we shall shed such floods of blood as we will make all the human losses suffered in the capitalist wars pale by comparison. The biggest bankers across the ocean will work in the closest possible contact with us. If we win the revolution, we shall establish the power of Zionism upon the wreckage of the revolution's funeral, and we shall become a power before which the whole world will sink to its knees. We shall know what real power is, by means of terror and bloodbath. We shall reduce the Russian intelligentsia to a state of complete stupefaction and idiocy into an animal system. Mass arrests in the middle of the night, kidnapping, executions, and brutal tactics and torture took place. The communist plan was to use psychological warfare, torture, and terror to intimidate their white enemies into submission. Gendrysh Yagoda was a Jewish secret police official who served as the director of the NKVD. A major Israeli publication, Ynet News, revealed the truth about Yagoda, saying, we must not forget that some of the greatest mass murders of all time were Jewish. He goes on, Gendrysh Yagoda was the greatest Jewish murderer of the 20th century. He is responsible for the deaths of at least 10 million people. The Jewish checkout was a secret police force created through the NKVD, later KGB, on December 20, 1917, by the Jew Vladimir Lenin, and was consequently led by the Jew Felix Jasinski. 
Jews made up nearly 80% of the rank and file Sheka agents, reports Bruce Lincoln, an American professor of Russian history. The Sheka rounded up Christians and all those who did not support the Jewish Bolshevik government. The Sheka practiced torture methods, including skinning victims alive, scoffing, croning for barbed wire, crucifixion, hanging, stoning to death. Women and children were also victims of the terror. They would sometimes be tortured and raped before being shot. Children between the ages of 8 to 13 were imprisoned and executed. With hot irons, the Bolsheviks tortured those prisoners who were caught. Some victims were actually sliced to pieces, bit by bit, while others were branded with hot irons. Their eyes poked out to induce unbearable pain. Burning coals were inserted into women's genitals. Often in views of victims' family members, prisoners were publicly hanged. Communists in Kharkov placed their victims in a row and nailed their hands to a table, cut around their wrists with a knife, poured boiling water over the hands, and pulled off the skin. They poked out eyes, blew bones and legs and arms, and extracted nails, cut off hands, ears, and noses. Victims were submerged in boiling ore or tar. Victims were dosed with petrol and burned alive. Lazar Kaganovich was the Jewish head of the KGB and was well known for his purges of those who opposed Jewish control. It is argued that Stalin, whose second wife was Kaganovich's sister, was a mere figurehead. Some believe that the numerous Jews below Stalin in all significant positions ran the show. As proof, some point out that many of the churches were burned to the ground while the synagogues were left standing. Many priests were forced to sweep the streets and others were murdered. The Jewish Soviet leaders held rabbis in high esteem. And those people who dared to criticize the Jewish supremacy were mercilessly murdered as anti-Semitism became a crime punishable by death in the Soviet Union. The Jew Kaganovich ordered the death of millions and the total destruction of Christian monuments and churches. Among these victims were bishops, professors, doctors, policemen, officers, lawyers, civil servants, journalists, writers, artists, nurses, workers, and farmers. The most intelligent and the highest achieving segment of the population was totally wiped out, which left a population of ignorant workers, peasants, and a powerful Jewish ruling elite. Lenin said, we must hate. Hatred is the basis of communism. Children must be taught to hate their parents if they're not communists. From the American Hebrew of September 8, 1920. The Bolshevist revolution in Russia was the work of Jewish brains, of Jewish dissatisfaction, of Jewish planning, whose goal is to create a new order in the world. What was performed in so excellent a way in Russia, thanks to Jewish brains, and because of Jewish dissatisfaction and by Jewish planning shall also through the same Jewish mental and physical forces become a reality all over the world. A righteous Jew, Henry H. Klein, explained that Zionism is a political program for the conquest of the world. Zionism destroyed Russia by violence as a warning to other nations. It is destroying United States through bankruptcy as Lenin advised. Zionism wants another world war is necessary to enslave the people. Our manpower is scattered over the world. Will we be destroyed from within, or will we wake up in time to prevent it?
The Rabbi Stephen Samuel Wise in New York said, Some called it communism, but I call it Judaism. People were being shot um, day and night throughout the biggest country in the world. Stalin even got to the point of killing people by random, by quarters. Let's say 100,000 in the Tambov district. Okay, that's it. Whoever they grabbed and shot will be fulfilling quota. They wouldn't care about names. Then after the quotas were fulfilled, the local authorities would report to Stalin, to Central Committee, and ask uh, for additional quotas. Khrushchev prosil, because limit, what там там что-то ему там разрешалось, что-то семь или восемь тысяч врагов народа. Он просил, дайте мне лимит на семнадцать тысяч. An additional quota will be given, and after fulfilling, they would again ask for additional quota, and so it will go in circles. It was like a like mincemeat machine, you know. It was just killing and killing and killing. Sometimes the Jewish butchers cut open the stomachs of their victims, pulled out a length of small intestine, nailed it to a telegraph pole, and with a whip forced the victim to run circles around the pole until the whole intestine became unraveled and the victim died the most agonizing death possible. Pregnant Christian women were shamed to trees and their babies cut out of the bodies. Some victims in Kiev were placed in a coffin with a decomposing body and buried alive, only to be dug up after half an hour. Lenin was still not satisfied with this and reported, more power to the terror. The Bolsheviks would eliminate every free thinker. Trotsky wanted every individual to be a rootless soldier of labor. And he thought that all those demanding free speech, free press, and free trade unions should be shot like dogs. If ordered to move, they were forced to obey. If they refused, they were deserters who would be punished with death. Every move was at gunpoint. Trotsky often executed his victims personally in the most cruelest ways. He happily ordered disciplinary executions and he even ordered children murdered. Officers and their families were executed for disobeying orders. The Jew Grigory Sinonyev, real name Hirsch Apfelbaum, as head of the Communist International, wrote in an article in the Drasnaya Gazeta in Moscow, September 1st, 1918. We will make our hearts cruel, hard, and immovable, so that no mercy will enter them, so that they will not quiver at the sight of the sea of enemy blood. We will let loose the floodgates of that sea. Without mercy, without sparing, we will kill our enemies in scores of hundreds. Let them be thousands. Let them drown themselves in their own blood. Let there be floods of blood of the bourgeoisie. More blood as much as possible. Every people who dared to criticize the regime would be branded as anti-Semitic and punished with death. 
Christians, priests, and the most attractive youth, and all non-Jewish intellectuals were the first to be exterminated. In years to come, Stalin's crime against humanity would make Lenin's threat to terror crumble in comparison. The Gulag was the Jewish NKVD system of forced labor and extermination camps. Any person suspected of disagreeing with the Jewish Bolshevik government was kidnapped by the Jewish secret police and deported to a Gulag. И тогда нас по фамилиям вызывали, по пятерках привезли, как привели, так мы по порядку и были. И тогда нас садили в вагоны. Вагоны такие похожие, но они были хуже. Они были деревянные вагоны. Такие с собаками, с этими Очень много солдат было. Там нам давали по ведро угля и потом потом мерзли дальше уже личной мерзлоты нужно было вырыть грунт значит фундамент 80 на 80 яма такая а грунт попадет иногда на 14 метров и только видно одна звезда и сколько на эту звезду я смотрела, я знала, что говорила, что и мама на эту звездочку смотрит. Мне надо видеть ее обязательно. Это меня удерживало. А как алкоголь держит Ну, как? Очень холодно, очень. Но когда работаешь, то уже не холодно, кровь тебя сохраняет, а потом надежда еще на то, чтобы выжить. Это еще двойная сила. Что это все впереди, что надо, надо, надо честным трудом. Как сказано, искупать свое вино перед Родиной. А потом я же строю для, для себя на своей Родине.
Говорит, давай ее сейчас заберем, что она все равно помрет завтра, за, за ней еще ехать нужно будет сегодня. Она просит, что да я же еще живу, я жить хочу, я в ну, я... Хотел спастись любыми путями. 
не все люди вот были такие, что могли спокойно, поэтому и описывается, что и убивали, и вырезали икры, и вырезали груди, и очень много можно было и других историй вспомнить. Даже, даже вот, вот, допустим, человек только уже вот-вот должен умереть, люди уже стояли и ждали, когда он умрет, чтобы какой-то кусок мяса взять. Сырым мясом ели, сырое мясо ели. Уже не, не думали, что он больной чем-то или не больной, лишь бы только поесть и хоть может еще день прожить. части тела мягкие, на костре жарились, съедали, тут же все страшные вещи начались. стадиях человек видно как-то приспосабливается к этому, то постепенно вот этот дефицит веществ начинает сказываться на психике человека. И здесь на первый план могут всплыть именно из бессознательного наши природные животные инстинкты, такие как каннибализм. Это достаточно нередкое явление в периоды таких больших массовых голоданий когда голодает большое количество людей. На другий день моя сестра где-то там ходила по тих лугах, что она там делала, я не скажу, уже ей нема в живых. Она, <coughs> она находит черепа детского. Уже отваренный, уже без волос, без ничего, такой череп. Она взяла такую на палочку и дай крутить. А у нас там по соседству жил мужчина. Оно не его звали. Каже, что это ты крутишь там? Она каже, какой череп. 
ми подивилися, вони подивилися, то він бере маму мою і йдуть до неї. Вони приходять до неї, то в неї вже сокіра в крові і на сінах кров. Ну це вже був найстоящий голод. Вони питають її, а де ж ваші діти? Нема, помирали, то я їх на Трощенському руху похоронила, в канаві Трощенській. Вони пішли шукати, то там нема свіжої землі, нема тієї канави. Приходять знов до неї додому, це мама моя сім, то я дуже помню. Ой, вони прийшли, то вона вже наварила цього м'яса дитячого, печки колись, печі, печі були не. І в діжечки посоляне м'ясо, це дитяче, вже посоляне, зложене діжечки. Вони заставили її вона у мішок, це м'ясо, і вели її у Іванопіль, там була міліція, там було цей НКВД. Та й вона в лісі пропала. Серце лопло, і вона не дійшла туди. The founders of the Gulag death camp system were the two Jews, Naftali Frankel and Levi Bermhen. The infamous Soviet Gulags were under the direct control of the mass-murdering Jew, Gendrish Yagoda. He was not the only one involved in the running of these camps. The Jew Lev Inchir was the commissar for Soviet death camp transit administration. Ferin, Rapoport, Kogan, and Zhuk were commissars of the death camps and slave labor. They also supervised the mass deaths of laborers during the construction of the White Sea Baltic Canal. Jews were the commandants of 11 out of 12 main gulags or concentration camps including the camp system directors Matvei Barman and Herschel Yehuda. A particularly cruel sadist was the Jew Leonid Reichmann, head of the NKVD's special department and the organization's chief interrogator. Ironically, communism, a.k.a. the workers' paradise, was pretty much the opposite. The policy hurt every worker and benefited only the communists in high power. Everyone who opposed Stalin's collectivization paid with their lives. Communism was not created by the masses to overthrow the bankers. Communism was created by the bankers to overthrow and enslave the masses.
There were many different motives for why the First World War was fought. Since 1871, Germany had emerged as a powerhouse, upsetting the long-established balance of power sheen in Europe. The established great powers, Britain, France, and Russia, joined together in 1914 to destroy this new rival. On the 28th of June, 1914, Gabriel Prince a Bosnian Serb and a failed student, assassinated the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, successor to the Austria-Hungarian zone. Austria-Hungary has signed a defensive pact with Germany, which Germany in 1909 reconfirmed by declaring that Germany was bound to stand by Austria-Hungary, even if it had started a war. Austria declared war on Serbia, which started the First World War. Throughout the whole war, Germany wanted peace and had nothing to gain in the conflict whatsoever. Even if Germany was well on its way to winning the war in December of 1916, Kaiser Wilhelm offered to negotiate peace with the intent powers. By December 1918, Germany had a clear advantage. France had suffered horrible losses. Russia faced internal Bolshevik uprising and revolutionary chaos and had to withdraw its troops. Britain was under the U-boat blockade and not one inch of Germany had been occupied. Germany still offered generous peace terms. Kaiser Wilhelm was ready to just call off the war and return to how things were before. That was when the Zionist Jews, Chaim Wiseman and Nathan Sokolov approached the British a dirty deal. They offered to use their global influence to bring the U.S. into the war on Britain's side, while undermining and destroying Germany from within. In exchange for U.S. entry, the British would steal Palestine from Ottoman Turkey, which was Germany's ally, and then allow the Jews to settle there. The deal was called the Balfour Declaration and was delivered to the Baron Walter Rothschild. Jews in London then sent messages to Louis Brandeis, one of the Jewish members of the Supreme Court, instructed him to President Wilson to join the war. Other Zionist power brokers such as Bernard Baruch, Paul Warburg, and Jacob Schiff also pressured America to join. The British government agreed that they would support a Jewish homeland in Palestine in exchange for the powerful Jewish lobby in America getting the USA to join the Allies. British airplanes dropped leaflets over Germany, printed in Yiddish. The Balfour leaflets to win Jewish support in Germany by promising the Jews a homeland in Palestine after they have won the war. And here it is, the Balfour Declaration. What do you feel when you, when you see it here? I genuinely feel it's one of the most extraordinary moments in the history of the Jewish people. Uh, if you think it took 3,000 years uh, to get to this. And then you say, how did this miracle happen? Oh, it's the most incredible piece of opportunism. I mean, if you think you had an impoverished uh, would-be scientist, Heim Weizmann, who somehow gets to England, meets a few people, including members of my family, seduces them, he has such great charm and conviction, he gets to Balfour, and he unbelievably persuades Balfour and Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, and most of the ministers, that this idea of um, the national home for um, Jews should be allowed to take place. After the deal was made, Jewish-owned media immediately unleashed a ton of anti-German propaganda, depicting the Germans as barbaric Huns. 
This was done to get the public support for American intervention in the war, while the Zionists and Jewish Marxists of Germany started to destabilize Germany from within through several strikes within the arms industry factories, which weakened the German war effort. If America wouldn't have been tricked into the war, it would have been stopped right there and then, and millions of your lives would have been saved. American entrance into the war was then carried out as promised. Lord Balfour was assuring the Zionists that Britain would fulfill its end of the deal after the war had ended, the theft and overthrowing of Palestine from the Ottoman Turks. Before more European blood would be shed on European soil, both Germany and Austria-Hungary again asked for a peaceful resolution. Wilson was forced to admit that Germany and Austria-Hungary had indeed expressed general peace proposals, but he casually dismissed them all. Lying about how beautiful the post-war peace was going to be like, Wilson managed to trick so many war-weary Germans into an unconditional surrender and disarmament in November of that same year, 1918. Communists and Zionists within Germany stabbed their countrymen in the back. Marxist trade union leaders ordered factory strikes which deprived German troops of their vital supplies. German morale and industrial output quickly fell. Germany laid down the weapons and wished for an honorary peace. After the war, the treacherous betrayal of 1918 became known as the stab in the back. Germany had simply been betrayed from within by Zionists and Communists and consequently they were all tied together as enemies because they wished to see Germany fail. In Israel today, Balfour Day, November the 2nd, is widely celebrated. The Palestinian Arabs observe it as a day of grief. In January 1919, the victors met at the Paris Peace Conference to financially crush Germany and determine the new borders of the defeated nation. Germany was not even invited and would not have any say in the final decisions as the globalists ripped Germany to pieces. The conference also created the basis for a future world government, the League of Nations. The Zionist delegation that was present that had brought America into the war also made sure that former Arab territories of the Ottoman Empire were separated from Turkish rule and broken up into small states so that Palestine could become a British protectorate. The Jews then claimed to a piece of Palestine guaranteed by the League of Nations exactly as Herzl had predicted in 1887. Out of the Paris Peace Conference came the brutal and notorious Treaty of Versailles on 20th of June, 1919, and the Treaty of Saint-Germain on 20th of September the same year. Even liberal historians recognize the evil of the treaty today. A Germany that did not want any war, that had tried to avoid war, and had offered to make peace on numerous occasions throughout the whole war was now totally disarmed. Germany was forced to pay massive war reparations in the form of money and natural resources. The crushing debt payments, 100 billion marks equal to $1 trillion in modern currency, devastated the German economy and soon caused a hyperinflationary monetary collapse. The total sum of war reparations demanded from Germany were about 226 billion marks. The aim was to financially break Germany. 
John Maynard Keynes predicted that these harsh reparations would lead to the financial collapse of Germany. Germany's armed forces were restricted to 100,000 men, intended solely for police duties within the country, and conscription was prohibited. All German colonies were taken away from her. The same thing happened with a number of German areas in Europe. In total, Germany had to give up 13% of her lands. Several million Germans ended up stranded outside of the German Empire, and millions were forcefully expelled from their homes. Germany also lost large parts of their industry when key iron ore and coal assets disappeared. The industrial German Rhineland would be occupied by French troops for 15 years. The Treaty of Versailles was a devastating peace treaty for Germany, but the agreement also had serious economic consequences not only for Germany, but also for Europe and the world, as Germany was such an important brick in the world economy. The treaty contained 440 clauses, 414 out of them were specifically dedicated to punishing Germany for a war that the nation was totally innocent of. In the Times, 1919, Winston Churchill expressed the ultimate goal of the treaty. Should Germany do business again in the next 50 years, we had led this war in vain. The encirclement and unprecedented hunger blockade killed almost a million of German children, women, old men, and the most fragile of society. The Allies now had only one fixed intention, to prolong the power of Versailles and to destroy Germany for good. Germany was now completely disarmed and she had been damaged on all sides and had no way of defending herself. At any moment could her neighbors decide to attack her. Because of the enormous reparation costs to be paid in gold, there was no longer any backing for the mark. This led to inflation, which totally wiped out all the German savings. Germany 1922-23 faced the most horrific hyperinflation the world has ever seen, and the German mark became worthless. Unemployment, hunger, and a hopeless future distinguished the Weimar Republic to the German people. Suicide rates were high. Unemployment topped 30% as desperate Germans committed suicide. Birth rates were extremely low. Anarchy and chaos was in the air. There was nothing the disarmed, humiliated, and hungry German people could do about it, as communists even seized parts of many cities. In 1929, the Federal Reserve caused the Great Depression. The researcher Boris Borisov, in his article titled The American Famine, estimated the victims of the financial crisis in the U.S. at over 7 million people. The globalist powers had now managed to orchestrate yet another famine that killed millions of white Europeans like in Russia before. Ben Bernanke said regarding the Great Depression, we did it. By we, Bernanke of course meant the Jewish leaders of the Federal Reserve System. Back in Germany, the effects of the engineered stock market crash was even worse than in any other country, as the life savings of the people were wiped out as prices doubled every two days for 20 straight months. 1922, inflation was spiraling wildly out of control. People would be paid in the morning and have suitcasefuls of banknotes and they would have to then run to the shops because in the time between being paid and the time when they bought their goods, their food, the prices would have risen. 
Berlin was in a state of total, total chaos. Hundreds of thousands of dispossessed, starving in the streets. And at the same time, you had very rich people. So you got on the one hand, the poor eating turnip soup, the butchers selling crows, squirrels, even rats. And on the other side, people who could afford it, eating the most sumptuous meals like they never paused for thought. The Germans had to pay 2 to 20 billion marks for a single positive stamp. A loaf of bread cost 2 billion marks. A pound of butter cost 2 trillion marks. The German middle class was the worst hit and saw all their savings and businesses being destroyed. Starving families and the children banged on the streets. Many Germans referred to their devalued money as Judefetzen, Jewish confetti. Because whilst the Germans were starving, the Jewry lived their golden luxury life in the Republic. Germany was totally bankrupt in the end of 1929. The Jewish statistician Alfred Marcus estimated the average Jewish income for 1930 at three times the average income for the rest of the population. The industries, as in the Ruhr, were all bankrupt and workers were all laid off in their millions. In January 1933, over six million Germans were unemployed. Although the Jews comprised less than 1% of the German population, the political influence of the Jews in the Weimar Republic was enormously out of proportion to their numbers in the population. They managed to control over 50% of the media and the press, and 70% of all the judges, 57% of the metal trade, 22% of grain, and 39% of the textile trade. German banking and finance was under the total control of Jews. They were particularly evident in the private banking in Berlin, which in 1923 had 150 private Jewish banks, as opposed to only 11 private non-Jewish banks. Four of the six members of the controlling board of the Reichstag directors were Jews, including Jacob Goldschmidt and Rudolf Habenstein. In order for anyone to control people's minds, one has to control the press and media. Jewish domination of the press and the public mind began with Reuters News Agency in 1865. Established by the Jew Paul Reuter, born Israel Bere Yosafat in 1865, the Reuters Telegram Company was the first major news organization in the world. Almost every major news outlet in the world today subscribes to Reuters services, which operates in over 200 cities in 94 countries in about 20 languages. The Washington Post was controlled by Zionist Federal Reserve Chairman Eugene Mayer. In 1940, Mayer would fire the Washington Post pacifist editor for refusing to endorse U.S. involvement in World War II. Post would later be handed down to Mayer's daughter, the late Catherine Mayer Graham. In 1896, Adolf Ochs bought the New York Times and formed the New York Times Company. The Ochs-Sulzberger family, one of the United States newspaper dynasties, has owned the New York Times ever since. For 117 years, America's most influential news source has been in the hands of the same family. In 1926, the Jew David Sarna formed NBC, the first major broadcast network in the U.S. In 1928, the 27-year-old Jewish businessman William S. Paley 
secured majority ownership of the CBS radio network. Haley expanded CBS into a national powerhouse with 114 affiliate stations. It is very important to remember that the four most powerful media sources, the Washington Post, the New York Times, NBC, and CBS, were now all under total Jewish ownership and control. Jewish Daily Bulletin on July 27, 1935, said, There is only one power which really counts, the power of political pressure. We Jews are the most powerful people on earth because we have this power and we know how to apply it. The two largest German newspapers before 1933 were also in Jewish hands, Leopold Ulstein, August Scherl, and Rudolf Moss. These Jews had a virtual monopoly on the German press. Their main publication was the Berliner Tageblatt. The editor of this paper was Theodor Wolf, a Jew, who also took a prominent part in politics. All editorials, all policy, all thought, and every single sphere of major influence had now fallen under Jewish control. Of the 29 legitimate theaters in Berlin, 23 had Jewish directors. In 1931, of 144 film scripts made into movies, 119 were written by Jews and 77 produced by Jews. what have the Germans done to the Jews, you must always ask what have you done the Jews to the Germans. In 1918, Lenin and Trotsky established a communist international, also known as the Comintern, in Moscow, Russia. In the days following the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, Trotsky promoted the idea of a permanent revolution, which meant that the Soviet Union had to politically provoke other nations throughout the world to start their own Bolshevik revolutions. The Comintern stated openly that its intention was to fight for the creation of an international Soviet Republic, i.e. a communist world government. Comintern-affiliated parties formed in France, Italy, China, Germany, Spain, Belgium, the U.S., and other nations. The ideology of communism spread like a poison through Europe. The author Ernst Elmhurst explained in 1938 that socialism, communism, and Bolshevism in reality are only links in the plan of world-embracing Judaism, with its final purpose of forcing the entire world on the Jewish doctrine. Following the Russian Revolution of 1917, revolutionary Jewish communist leaders Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg led a group of Jewish communists, Kurt Eisner, Paul Levy, Franz Mehring, Wilhelm Pieck, Richard Müller, Emil Bach, Gustav Landauer, Eugene Levine, and Emil Eichhorn to attempt a violent and bloody communist revolution in Germany as well. They were heroically stopped in 1919 by the veterans in the German Freikorps. The Jew Belun instigated a Jewish revolution and took over the leadership of Hungary in March 1919. 
After months of red terror and massacres of Christians, the Hungarians managed to fight back. Hungarian Rear Admiral Miklas Horthy formed a national army to fight the Bolsheviks. With the support of the Romanian army, Horthy managed to take back the country on August 1, 1919. In Italy, Jewish-led communists committed mass murders in Sarana, Modena, Bologna, Pietro, Viana, and Milan, but were defeated by Mussolini's fascist forces. Fascism was a movement to save Europe from communism. Today, thanks to our globalist media, almost everyone thinks that fascism was something horrible. Fascism is, shortly, a defender of the nation its culture, and people. Under fascism, government plays a key role in monitoring film, theater, art, literature, music, education, etc. In order to maintain a high moral standard, keep things clean and respectable, promote a strong sense of patriotism and honor, and prevent the spreading of decadence which corrupts society from within. Even Winston Churchill thought that fascism proved the necessary antidote to the communist poison. He said of Mussolini, Roman genius, the greatest lawgiver among men. Speaking in Rome on January 20, 27, Winston Churchill said, If I had been an Italian, I am sure that I should have been wholeheartedly with you from the start to the finish. Italy has shown that there is a way of fighting the subversive forces which can rally the masses of the people, properly led to value and wish to defend the honor and stability of civilized society. Hereafter, no great nation will be unprovided with an ultimate means of protection against the cancerous growth of Bolshevism. Twelve years later, Winston Churchill will align his country and people with Bolshevism. Oswald Mosley was the fascist leader of Britain and tried to save his country as well, but never managed to get enough power. Cornelio Cadrano said, Fascism means, first of all, defending your nation against the dangers that threaten it. It means the destruction of these dangers and the opening of a free way to life and glory for your nation. Jewish Bolsheviks then attempted to take Spain in 1936, which led to the bloody Spanish Civil War. The Jews launched an orgy of mass murder, rape and destruction. The Jew Leiba Lazarevich Feldbin, Soviet Red Army officer, was chief of Soviet security in the Spanish Civil War. Over 20,000 churches across Spain were destroyed, 6,832 Spanish priests, 3,000 monks, 300 nuns, and 13 bishops were killed. Some 4,000 laymen were also murdered for helping or hiding nuns for priests. Feldbin was one of the masterminds behind the massacres. In 1939, the devout Roman Catholic general Francisco Franco stepped up and created a united nationalist group and managed to save Spain from a communist takeover. Franco had the support of Antonio Salazar in Portugal, Benito Mussolini in Italy, and Adolf Hitler in Germany. On February 8, 1920, Sir Winston Churchill expressed his alarm over the world developments in an interview published in the Sunday Illustrated Herald, London. From the days of Adam Spartacus Weishaupt to those of Karl Marx, those of Trotsky, Bela Kuhn, Rosa Luxemburg, and Emma Goldman, this worldwide conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization and for the reconstruction of society on the basis of arrested development of envious malevolence and impossible equality has been steadily growing.
ideological and cultural subversion is a subtle, gradual, and persistent undermining internally of another group's values, strength, and ways of life with the aim of making them vulnerable. This is the strategy that the communists used when they infiltrated and took over societies from within, starting with Germany. The four stages of subversion are demoralization, destabilization, crisis, and normalization. When uh, the Soviets used the phrase ideological subversion, what do they mean by it? Ideological subversion is, is the process which is legitimate, overt, and open. You, you can see it with your own eyes. All, all you have to do, all American mass media has to do, is to unplug their bananas from their ears, open up their eyes, and they can see it. Only about 15% of time, money, and manpower is spent on espionage as such. The other 85% is a slow process, which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, in the language of the KGB, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interest of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing uh, process which goes very slow and is divided in, in four basic stages. Uh, the first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? Because this is the minimum number of years which requires to uh, educate one generation of students in the country of, of, of your enemy, exposed to the ideology of the enemy. In other words, Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students without being challenged or counterbalanced by the basic values of Americanism, American patriotism. The demoralization process in the United States is basically completed already. Uh, for the last 25 years, actually it's overfulfilled because demoralization now reaches such areas where previously not even Comrade Andropov and, and all his experts would, would even dream of such a tremendous success. Most of it is done by Americans to Americans, thanks to lack of moral standards. As I mentioned before, uh, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who was demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him. Uh, even if I shower him with information, with, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures, even if I take him by force to the Soviet Union and show him concentration camps, he will refuse to believe it until he, he is going to receive a kick in, the, in his fat bottom. When a military boot crashes him, then he will understand, but not before that. That's the tragic of the situation of demoralization. The next stage is destabilization. This time, subverter does not care about your ideas and the patterns of your consumption, whether you eat junk food and get fat and flabby, it doesn't matter anymore. This time, and it takes only from two to five years to destabilize a nation, uh, it's, what, what matters is essentials, economy, foreign relations, defense systems. Uh, and you can see it quite clearly that in some areas, uh, 
in such sensitive areas as, as uh, defense and economy. Uh, the uh, influence of Marxist-Leninist ideas in the United States is absolutely fantastic. I, I could never believe it 14 years ago when I landed uh, in this part of the world that the process will go that fast. Uh, the next stage, of course, is crisis. It, it, it may take only up to six weeks to, to bring a country to the verge of crisis. You can see it in, in Central America now. And after crisis, with a violent change of, of power, structure, and economy, you have so-called the period of normalization. It may last indefinitely. This is what will happen in the United States if you allow all these schmucks to bring the country to crisis, to promise people all kinds of goodies and the paradise on earth, uh, to, to destabilize your uh, economy, to eliminate the principle of free market competition and to put a big brother government in Washington, D.C., who will promise lots of things, never mind whether the promises are fulfilled or not. Your leftists in the United States, all these professors and all these beautiful civil rights defenders, they are instrumental in the process of the, of the uh, uh, subversion only to destabilize the nation. When their job is completed, they are, not, they are not needed anymore. They know too much. Some of them, when, when they get disillusioned, when they see that Marxist-Leninists come to power, they, obviously they get offended. They think that they will come to power. That will never happen, of course. They will be lined up against the wall and shot. Towards the end of 1922, the Communist International, Comintern, began to consider how they would succeed taking over Europe in the most effective way. On Lenin's initiative, a meeting was organized at the Marx-Engels Institute in Moscow. The aim of the meeting was to start the Marx Cultural Revolution. Among those present at the meeting was George Lukács, a Jewish-Hungarian aristocrat and a son of a banker. In the summer of 1924, Lukács moved to Germany. Here he held the first meeting of a group of communist-oriented intellectuals. This gathering was to lead the foundation of the Frankfurt School. The institute had been officially established and funded by the Jewish millionaire. All right, everybody, podcasting here live. Understand the times at which we live today. All right, here we go. I hope everybody liked their documentary there. Um, a little late night knowledge there for everybody. Um, hey, this is, you have to understand your enemy. You have to understand what these people are trying to do to you. And, uh, I just figured I'd put it out there. So, uh, that's just a, a little bit of a part, part of a 12 hour documentary there. So, but if you missed, uh, again, uh, next week, next Tuesday, 6.30 PM Eastern Standard Time, we've got the Republic on here. So, uh. Tonight we had some technical difficulties, so anybody here want to talk, anybody want to add something, uh, want to bring up something about these filthy, rotten politicians that are just, oh, I mean, uh, Biden has declared war. I mean, this guy's nuts. I mean, he's just, I mean, I, I, I can't, is anybody out there, did we expect this, or is he doing stuff that we just never thought he would do? I mean, I mean, this guy is nuts. 
So anybody else want to speak, uh, call in now, 657-388-3061. Got a couple people on the phone line here, but nobody's pushing one. So we're going to get ready to wrap it up here. So I'll play something here at the end. If you got something you want to add here, let me check the chat room here. We only got one person in the chat room. Okay. All right. Ah, Sarge. There's Sarge. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Uh, hope everybody stays safe out there and uh, keep fighting the new world order, resisting it, and uh, stand up. Stand up uh, and and fight for what is right and what is important to you and your family. Let's talk to Will in Arizona. Thanks for holding her on the air. First off, I am a Prison TV Planet member. Awesome, brother. Go ahead and into your points, and I'll hold you over if need be. Um, if you really want to have an unbridged idea of what is going on today, look at... Uh, it's actually a YouTube video, but it's a it's a documentary. Uh, Adolf Hitler, uh, the greatest story never told. He actually kicked out a lot of the bankers because they were trying to implode Germany after World War One, and it was the bankers. And uh, when I was watching that, it was five hours long, and I started listening and saying to myself, "Wait a minute, They're, they are just repeating history, but because we are so dumbed down in the sense of our historical knowledge." Well, I haven't seen the documentary you're talking about. Uh, but uh, people can, I guess, check it out for themselves. In the very well-made, excellent and moving documentary called Adolf Hitler, The Greatest Story Never Told. I want you to do something for me as well, and I would really appreciate it. Before you listen to this interview, I want you to watch the documentary. I know you want to listen to this program right away, but if you haven't already seen it, I want you to stop this program right now and go watch the documentary first. And I'm adamant about watching the documentary because one of the biggest hurdles that the majority of people seem to have, they're basically just kind of set in their ways and they argue that they already know everything that they need to know concerning this topic. Well, I can promise you, people, you don't know one-tenth of it. I seriously had a panic attack after I watched that documentary, The Greatest Story Never Told. And um, for days afterward, I was really shook, shook up. I, it was it had such a profound impact on me, and, and everything started making so much sense. And I felt so. I mean, I've always felt kind of betrayed by, by the powers that be, but I felt more betrayed than ever. And mm -hmm. I started and I started looking back on my entire life, and yeah. looking back at all the movies that I'd seen. I just couldn't believe it. I thought if they could pull off this, then anything is possible. Anything. Yeah. You know, and. Uh, that one, you know, I would encourage anybody watching this or listening to this to, to watch that hasn't seen that documentary to watch it and you can go with, back with and, an open mind, uh, open mind and listen to that interview that you did with um, Dennis Wise recently. But that's most likely what, what got us censored from iTunes, by the way, too, that show. Yeah, well, that uh, shows it, what we're not allowed to talk about. It's just yeah, it's exactly. off limits, you know, that, and that's what when I was going through that sort of panic attack re realization. That was it. That was the that was the big red flag. I was like, oh my god! Like, of course, of course, we're not being told the truth because we're not allowed to talk about this issue. When you're not allowed to talk about something, then that's that's like the red flag right there. If it's off yeah. limits, then that's the thing you need to talk about the most. And to, and the rule to remember is that history is written by the winner. I can promise you, people, you don't know one tenth of it. There it is right there.
California, welcome home its fighting son, General George S. Pat. Ladies and gentlemen, here comes General Patton to the microphone, standing very erect. And now, he's about to speak. Your Honor, the Mayor, General Doolittle, soldiers, ladies and gentlemen, it's very difficult for me to speak because what you have just seen is not a phantasma but damn near a reality. And God forgive me, I love that sort of war. Coming over here, over a thousand miles, Ladies and gentlemen, they're adjusting the microphone at this time for General Patton. The crowd is not hearing him, and they can hardly see him because of all the smoke from this simulated battle scene down here. They have adjusted the microphone, and he's about to speak again. Coming over here... I, as a young lieutenant, 
wrote a very damn good people case and miscounted the number of times around the court and pulled up reading and the other words is fasting. Don't do that. We are not around the court the last time yet. Don't pull up now. This war is only half won. You must win the rest of it. You must remember this. That from breath to various towns in southern Germany and Austria, whose names I can't pronounce, whose places I have moved. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 